Ahoy crew, and thank you for joining today on part one of our nautical Halloween special. This year, for whatever reason, I gravitated toward this long story. As you'll see, it's really a novel, if we're being honest, and once all four parts are concluded, you will pretty much have an audiobook. In prior specials, if you recall, and definitely go check them out too if you need extra doses of nautical Halloween stories, but in those other episodes, we've covered short stories by H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, a few others besides. Today, we have a horror novel written by English writer William Hope Hodgson, who wrote quite a bit over the course of his career, spanning genres of horror, science fiction, and even fantastical fiction, I guess you would call it. But the reason that I love this story and some of the other works by Hodgson is because he was a sailor during his early life. I think that perspective will come through in the story over the next four parts. It's a horror novel called The Boats of the Glen Carrig. I'd like to give a brief intro, and then we will get right into it. The novel, in sum, is comprised of 17 chapters. I've elected to break them into four parts, which I'll publish as separate episodes in the feed, but once we have all four parts, as I said, it'll be the entirety of the book. The story itself is approached by Hodgson and laid out as a survivor's account. The survivor told this account to his son, and the son later wrote down the account. I'm sure you'll be able to tell once we get into it. It's written in a purposefully archaic style to give a sense of age. It's also done to give it the feel of something that could be a true account of events that occurred in the past. The subtitle actually lays out the specifics of the way that this is approached, so just pay attention to that and then keep this in mind as you hear the archaic style throughout the story. This is a purposeful approach by Hodgson. Anyway, beyond that, also prepare just for a tale of eerie fiction. There's elements of horror and survival, lots of detail about life at the sea, and just a sailor's perspective about coming into a strange and terrifying land. Even Lovecraft himself said that this story, quote, shows us a variety of malign marvels and accursed unknown lands, as encountered by survivors of a sunken ship. And really, that just about sums it up, if that was Lovecraft's perspective, I think. I hope you enjoy part one, and that you'll come back for the following three parts that will be the totality of the boats of the Glen Carrig. Thanks so much, crew. Happy Halloween, and fair winds and following seas from me here at the Maritime History Podcast. The Boats of the Glen Carrig Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth, after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig, through striking upon a hidden rock and the unknown seas to the southward. As told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. 
Chapter 1. The Land of Lonesomeness Now, we had been five days in the boats, and in all this time made no discovering of land. Then upon the morning of the sixth day came there a cry from the bosun, who had the command of the lifeboat, that there was something which might be land afar upon our larboard bow, but it was very low-lying, and none could tell whether it was land or but a morning cloud. Yet, because there was the beginning of hope within our hearts, we pulled wearily towards it, and thus in about an hour discovered it to be indeed the coast of some flat country. Then, it might be a little after the hour of midday, we had come so close to it that we could distinguish with ease what manner of land lay beyond the shore, and thus we found it to be of an abominable flatness, desolate beyond all that I could have imagined. Here and there it appeared to be covered with clumps of queer vegetation, though whether they were small trees or great bushes, I had no means of telling. But this I know, that they were like unto nothing which ever I had set eyes upon before. So much as this I gathered as we pulled slowly along the coast, seeking an opening whereby we could pass inward to the land. But a weary time passed, or ere we came upon that which we sought. Yet, in the end, we found it, a slimy-banked creek, which proved to be the estuary of a great river, though we spoke of it always as a creek. Into this we entered, and proceeded at no great pace upwards along its winding course, and as we made forward we scanned the low banks upon each side, perchance there might be some spot where we could make to land, but we found none, the banks being composed of a vile mud which gave us no encouragement to venture rashly upon them. Now having taken the boat something over a mile up the creek, we came upon the first of that vegetation which I had chanced to notice from the sea, and here, being within some score yards of it, we were the better able to study it. Thus I found that it was indeed composed largely of a sort of tree, very low and stunted and having what might be described as an unwholesome look about it. The branches of this tree I perceived to be the cause of my inability to recognize it from a bush, until I had come close upon it. For they grew thin and smooth through all their length, and hung towards the earth, being weighted thereto by a single large cabbage-like plant which seemed to sprout from the extreme tip of each. Presently, having passed beyond this clump of the vegetation, and the banks of the river remaining very low, I stood me upon a thwart, by which means I was enabled to scan the surrounding country. This I discovered, so far as my sight could penetrate, to be pierced in all directions with innumerable creeks and pools, some of these latter being very great of extent, and as I have before made mention, Everywhere the country was low set, as it might be a great plain of mud, so that it gave me a sense of dreariness to look out upon it. It may be, all unconsciously, that my spirit was put in awe by the extreme silence of all the country around, for in all that waste I could see no living thing, neither bird nor vegetable, save it be the stunted trees, which, indeed, grew in clumps here and there over all the land, so much as I could see. 
This silence, when I grew fully aware of it, was the more uncanny, for my memory told me that never before had I come upon a country which contained so much quietness. Nothing moved across my vision, not even a lone bird soared up against the dull sky, and, for my hearing, not so much as the cry of a seabird came to me. No, nor the croak of a frog, nor the plash of a fish. It was as though we had come upon the country of silence, which some have called the land of lonesomeness. Now three hours had passed whilst we ceased not to labor at the oars, and we could no more see the sea. Yet no place fit for our feet had come to view, for everywhere the mud, gray and black, surrounded us, encompassing us veritably by a slimy wilderness, and so we were fain to pull on, in the hope that we might come ultimately to firm ground. Then, a little before sundown, we halted upon our oars, and made a scant meal from a portion of our remaining provisions. And as we ate, I could see the sun sinking away over the wastes, and I had some slight diversion in watching the grotesque shadows which it cast from the trees into the water upon our larboard side for we had come to a pause opposite a clump of the vegetation. It was at this time, as I remember, that it was borne in upon me afresh how very silent was the land, and that this was not due to my imagination. I remarked that the men both in our own and in the boatswain's boat seemed uneasy because of it, for none spoke, save in undertones, as though they had fear of breaking it. And it was at this time, when I was awed by so much solitude, that there came the first telling of life in all that wilderness. I heard it first in the far distance, away inland. A curious, low, sobbing note it was, and the rise and the fall of it was like to the sobbing of a lonesome wind through a great forest. Yet there was no wind. Then, in a moment, it had died, and the silence of the land was awesome by reason of the contrast. And I looked about me at the men, both in the boat in which I was, and that which the boatswain commanded, and not one was there but held himself in a posture of listening. In this wise, a minute of quietness passed, and then one of the men gave out a laugh, born of the nervousness which had taken him. The boatswain muttered to him to hush, and in that same moment there came again the plaint of that wild sobbing, and abruptly it sounded away on our right, and immediately was caught up, as it were, and echoed back from some place beyond us afar up the creek. At that, I got me upon a thwart, intending to take another look over the country about us, but the banks of the creek had become higher. Moreover, the vegetation acted as a screen, even had my stature and elevation enabled me to overlook the banks. And so, after a little while, the crying died away, and there was another silence. Then, as we sat each one harking for what might next befall, George, the youngest prentice boy, who had his seat beside me, plucked me by the sleeve, inquiring in a troubled voice whether I had any knowledge of that which the crying might portend. But I shook my head, telling him that I had no knowing beyond his own, though for his comfort I said that it might be the wind. 
Yet at that he shook his head, for indeed it was plain that it could not be by such agency, for there was a stark calm. Now I had scarce made an end of my remark when again the sad crying was upon us. It appeared to come from far up the creek, and from far down the creek, and from inland and the land between us and the sea. It filled the evening air with its doleful wailing, and I remarked that there was in it a curious sobbing, most human in its despairful crying, and so awesome was the thing that no man of us spoke. For it seemed that we harked to the weeping of lost souls. And then, as we waited fearfully, the sun sank below the edge of the world, and the dusk was upon us. And now a more extraordinary thing happened, for as the night fell with swift gloom, the strange wailing and crying was hushed, and another sound stole out upon the land, a far sullen growling. At the first, like the crying, it came from far inland, but was caught up speedily on all sides of us, and presently the dark was full of it and it increased in volume, and strange trumpetings fled across it. Then, though with slowness, it fell away to a low, continuous growling, and in it there was that which I can only describe as an insistent, hungry snarl. No other word of which I have knowledge so well describes it as that, a note of hunger, most awesome to the ear. And this, more than all the rest of those incredible voicings, brought terror into my heart. Now, as I sat listening, George gripped me suddenly by the arm, declaring in a shrill whisper that something had come among the clump of trees upon the left-hand bank. Of the truth of this, I had immediately a proof, for I caught the sound of a continuous rustling among them, and then a nearer note of growling, as though a wild beast purred at my elbow. Immediately upon this, I caught the boatswain's voice, calling in a low tone to Josh, the eldest prentice, who had the charge of our boat, to come alongside of him, for he would have the boats together. Then got we out the oars and laid the boats together in the midst of the creek. And so we watched through the night, being full of fear, so that we kept our speech low, that is, so low as would carry our thoughts one to another through the noise of the growling. And so the hours passed, and naught happened more than I have told, save that once, a little after midnight, the trees opposite to us seemed to be stirred again, as though some creature or creatures lurked among them. And there came, a little after that, a sound as of something stirring the water up against the bank but it ceased in a while, and the silence fell once more. Thus, after a weariful time, away eastwards, the sky began to tell of the coming of the day, and as the light grew and strengthened, so did that insatiable growling pass hence with the dark and the shadows. And so at last came the day, and once more there was borne to us the sad wailing that had preceded the night, for a certain while it lasted, rising and falling most mournfully over the vastness of the surrounding wastes, until the sun was risen some degrees above the horizon, 
after which it began to fail, dying away in lingering echoes most solemn to our ears. And so it passed, and there came again the silence that had been with us in all the daylight hours. Now, it being day, the boatswain bade us make such spare breakfast as our provender allowed, after which, having first scanned the banks to discern if any fearful thing were visible, we took again to our oars, and proceeded on our upward journey, for we hoped presently to come upon a country where life had not become extinct, and where we could put foot to honest earth again. Yet, as I have made mention earlier, the vegetation where it grew did flourish most luxuriantly, so that I am scarce correct when I speak of life as being extinct in that land. For, indeed, now I think of it, I can remember that the very mud from which it sprang seemed veritably to have a fat, sluggish life of its own. So rich and viscid was it. Presently it was midday, yet was there but little change in the nature of the surrounding wastes, though it may be that the vegetation was something thicker and more continuous along the banks, but the banks were still of the same thick, clinging mud, so that nowhere could we effect a landing, though had we, the rest of the country beyond the banks seemed no better. And all the while, as we pulled, we glanced continuously from bank to bank, and those who worked not at the oars were fain to rest a hand by their sheathed knives, for the happenings of the past night were continually in our minds, and we were in great fear, so that we had turned back to the sea, but that we had come so nigh to the end of our provisions. Chapter 2. The Ship in the Creek then, it was nigh on to evening, we came upon a creek opening into the greater one through the bank on our left. We had been like to pass it, as indeed we had passed many throughout the day, but that the boatswain, whose boat had the lead, cried out that there was some craft lying up a little beyond the first bend. And indeed, so it seemed, for one of the masts of her, all jagged where it had carried away, stuck up plain to our view. Now, having grown sick with so much lonesomeness and being in fear of the approaching night, we gave out something near to a cheer, which, however, the boatswain silenced, having no knowledge of those who might occupy the stranger. And so, in silence, the boatswain turned his craft toward the creek, whereat we followed, taking heed to keep quietness, and working the oars warily. So, in a little while, we came to the shoulder of the bend and had plain sight of the vessel some little way beyond us. From the distance, she had no appearance of being inhabited, so that after some small hesitation, we pulled towards her, though still being at pains to keep silent. The strange vessel lay against that bank of the creek which was upon our right, and over above her was a thick clump of the stunted trees. For the rest, she appeared to be firmly embedded in the heavy mud, and there was a certain look of age about her, which carried me to a doleful suggestion that we should find not aboard of her fit for an honest stomach. We had come to a distance of maybe some ten fathoms from her starboard bow, for she lay with her head down toward the mouth of the little creek, 
When the bosun bade his men to back water, the which Josh did regarding our own boat, then, being ready to fly if we had been in danger, the bosun hailed the stranger, but got no reply, save that some echo of his shout seemed to come back at us. And so he sung out again to her, chance that there might be some below decks who had not caught his first hail. But for the second time, no answer came to us, save the low echo. Naught but that the silent trees took on a little quivering, as though his voice had shaken them. At that, being confident now within our minds, we laid alongside, and in a minute had shinned up the oars and so gained her decks. Here, save that the glass of the skylight of the main cabin had been broken, and some portion of the framework shattered, there was no extraordinary litter, so that it appeared to us as though she had been no great while abandoned. So soon as the bosun had made his way up from the boat, he turned aft toward the scuttle, the rest of us following. We found the leaf of the scuttle pulled forward to within an inch of closing, and so much effort did it require of us to push it back that we had immediate evidence of a considerable time since any had gone down that way. However, it was no great while before we were below, and here we found the main cabin to be empty save for the bare furnishings. From it, there opened off two staterooms at the forward end, and the captain's cabin in the after part, and in all of these we found matters of clothing and sundries, such as proved that the vessel had been deserted, apparently in haste. In further proof of this, we found, in a drawer in the captain's room, a considerable quantity of loose gold, the which it was not to be supposed would have been left by the free will of the owner. Of the stateroom, the one upon the starboard side gave evidence that it had been occupied by a woman, no doubt a passenger. The other, in which there were two bunks, had been shared, so far as we could have any certainty, by a couple of young men. And this we gathered by observation of various garments which were scattered carelessly about. Yet it must not be supposed that we spend any great time in the cabins, for we were pressed for food and made haste, under the direction of the bosun, to discover if the hulk held any victuals whereby we might be kept alive. To this end, we removed the hatch which led down to the lazarette, and lighting two lamps which we had with us in the boats went down to make a search. And so, in a little while, we came upon two casks, which the bosun broke open with a hatchet. These casks were sound and tight, and in them was ship's biscuit, very good and fit for food. At this, as may be imagined, we felt eased in our minds, knowing that there was no immediate fear of starvation. Following this, we found a barrel of molasses, a cask of rum, some cases of dried fruit, these were moldy and scarce fit to be eaten, a cask of salt beef, another of pork, a small barrel of vinegar, a case of brandy, two barrels of flour, one of which proved to be damp-struck, and a bunch of tallow dips. In a little while we had all these things up in the big cabin so that we might come at them the better to make choice of that which was fit for our stomachs, 
and that which was otherwise. Meantime, whilst the bosun overhauled these matters, Josh called a couple of the men and went on deck to bring up the gear from the boats, for it had been decided that we should pass the night aboard the Hulk. When this was accomplished, Josh took a walk forward to the forecastle, but found nothing beyond two seamen's chests, a sea bag, and some odd gear. There were, indeed, no more than ten bunks in the place, for she was but a small brig and had no call for a great crowd. Yet Josh was more than a little puzzled to know what had come to the odd chests, for it was not to be supposed that there had been no more than two and a sea bag among ten men, but to this at that time he had no answer, and so being sharp for supper, made a return to the deck and thence to the main cabin. Now, while he had been gone, the bosun had set the men to clearing out the main cabin, after which he had served out two biscuits apiece all round and a tot of rum. To Josh, when he appeared, he gave the same, and in a little we called a sort of council, being sufficiently stayed by the food to talk. Yet before we came to speech, we made shift to light our pipes, for the bosun had discovered a case of tobacco in the captain's cabin, and after this we came to the consideration of our position. We had provender, so the bosun calculated, to last us for the better part of two months, and this without any great stint, but we had yet to prove if the brig held water in her casks, for that in the creek was brackish, even so far as we had penetrated from the sea, else we had not been in need. To the charge of this, the bosun sent Josh along with two of the men. Another he told to take charge of the galley, so long as we were in the hulk. But for that night, he said we had no need to do aught for we had sufficient of water in the boat's breakers to last us till the morrow. And so, in a little, the dusk began to fill the cabin. But we talked on, being greatly content with our present ease and the good tobacco which we enjoyed. In a little while, one of the men cried out suddenly to us to be silent, and in that minute all heard it. A far, drawn-out wailing the same which had come to us in the evening of the first day. At that we looked at one another through the smoke and the growing dark, and even as we looked it became plainer heard, until in a while it was all about us. Aye, it seemed to come floating down through the broken framework of the skylight, as though some weariful, unseen thing stood and cried upon the decks above our heads. Now, through all that crying, none moved. None, that is, save Josh and the bosun, and they went up into the scuttle to see whether anything was in sight. But they found nothing, and so came down to us. For there was no wisdom in exposing ourselves, unarmed as we were, save for our sheathed knives. And so, in a little, the night crept down upon the world, and still we sat within the dark cabin, none speaking and knowing of the rest only by the glows of their pipes. All at once there came a low, muttered growl, stealing across the land, and immediately the crying was quenched in its sullen thunder. It died away, and there was a full minute of silence. Then once more it came, 
and it was nearer and more plain to the ear. I took my pipe from my mouth, for I had come again upon the great fear and uneasiness which the happenings of the first night had bred in me, and the taste of the smoke brought me no more pleasure. The muttered growl swept over our heads and died away into the distance, and there was a sudden silence. Then, in that quietness, came the boatswain's voice. He was bidding us haste every one into the captain's cabin. As we moved to obey him, he ran to draw over the lid of the scuttle, and Josh went with him, and together they had it across, though with a difficulty. When we had come into the captain's cabin, we closed and barred the door, piling two great sea chests up against it, and so we felt near to safe, for we knew that no thing, man nor beast, could come at us there. Yet, as may be supposed, we felt not altogether secure, for there was that in the growling which now filled the darkness that seemed demoniac, and we knew not what horrid powers were abroad. And so through the night the growling continued, seeming to be mighty near unto us, aye, almost over our heads, and of a loudness far surpassing all that had come to us on the previous night, so that I thanked the Almighty that we had come into shelter in the midst of so much fear. Chapter 3 The Thing That Made Search Now at times I fell upon sleep, as did most of the others, but for the most part I lay half sleeping and half waking, being unable to attain to true sleep by reason of the everlasting growling above us in the night, and the fear which it bred in me. Thus, it chanced that just after midnight I caught a sound in the main cabin beyond the door, and immediately I was fully waked. I sat me up and listened, and so became aware that something was fumbling about the deck of the main cabin. At that, I got to my feet and made my way to where the bosun lay, meaning to waken him if he slept. But he caught me by the ankle as I stooped to shake him and whispered to me to keep silent, for he too had been aware of that strange noise of something fumbling beyond in the big cabin. In a little, we crept both of us so close to the door as the chests would allow, and there we crouched, listening, but could not tell what manner of thing it might be which produced so strange a noise, for it was neither shuffling nor treading of any kind, nor yet was it the whir of a bat's wings, the which had first occurred to me, knowing how vampires are said to inhabit the nights in dismal places. Nor yet was it the slur of a snake, but rather it seemed to us to be as though a great wet cloth were being rubbed everywhere across the floor and bulkheads. We were the better able to be certain of the truth of this likeness, when, suddenly, it passed across the further side of the door behind which we listened, at which, you may be sure, we drew backward, both of us, in fright, though the door and the chests stood between us and that which rubbed against it. Presently the sound ceased, and, listen as we might, we could no longer distinguish it. Yet, until the morning, we dozed no more, being troubled in mind as to what manner of thing it was which had made search 
in the big cabin. Then in time the day came, and the growling ceased. For a mournful while the sad crying filled our ears, and then at last the eternal silence that fills the day hours of that dismal land fell upon us. So, being at last in quietness, we slept, being greatly wearied. About seven in the morning, the bosun waked me, and I found that they had opened the door into the big cabin. But though the bosun and I made careful search, we could nowhere come upon anything to tell us aught concerning the thing which had put us so in fright. Yet I know not if I am right in saying that we came upon nothing. For in several places, the bulkheads had a chafed look. But whether this had been there before that night, we had no means of telling. Of that which we had heard, the bosun bade me make no mention, for he would not have the men put more in fear than need be. This I conceived to be wisdom, and so held my peace. Yet I was much troubled in my mind to know what manner of thing it was which we had need to fear, and more, I desired greatly to know whether we should be free of it in the daylight hours, for there was always with me, as I went hither and thither, the thought that it, for that is how I designated it in my mind, might come upon us to our destruction. Now after breakfast, at which we had each a portion of salt pork, besides rum and biscuit, for by now the fire in the caboose had been set going, we turned to, at various matters, under the directing of the bosun. Josh and two of the men made examination of the water casks, and the rest of us lifted the main hatch covers, to make inspection of her cargo, but we found nothing save some three feet of water in the hold. By this time, Josh had drawn some water off from the casks, but it was most unsuitable for drinking, being vile of smell and taste. Yet the bosun bade him draw some into buckets so that the air might haply purify it. But though this was done and the water allowed to stand through the morning, it was but little better. At this, as might be imagined, we were exercised in our minds as to the manner in which we should come upon suitable water, for by now we were beginning to be in need of it. Yet though one said one thing, and another said another, no one had wit enough to call to mind any method by which our need should be satisfied. Then, when we had made an end of dining, the bosun sent Josh, with four of the men, upstream. Perchance after a mile or two the water should prove of sufficient freshness to meet our purpose. They returned a little before sundown, having no water, for everywhere it was salt. Now the bosun, foreseeing that it might be impossible to come upon water, had set the man whom he had ordained to be our cook to boiling the creek water in three great kettles. This he had ordered to be done soon after the boat left, and over the spout of each he had hung a great pot of iron, filled with cold water from the hold, this being cooler than that from the creek, so that the steam from each kettle impinged upon the cold surface of the iron pots, and being by this means condensed, was caught in three buckets placed beneath them upon the floor of the caboose. 
In this way, enough water was collected to supply us for the evening and the following morning. Yet it was but a slow method, and we had sore need of a speedier, were we to leave the hulk so soon as I, for one, desired. We made our supper before sunset, so as to be free of the crying which we had reason to expect. After that, the bosun shut the scuttle, and we went every one of us into the captain's cabin, after which we barred the door, as on the previous night. And well was it for us that we acted with this prudence. By the time that we had come into the captain's cabin and secured the door, it was upon sunsetting, and as the dusk came on, so did the melancholy wailing pass over the land. Yet, being by now somewhat inured to so much strangeness, we lit our pipes and smoked, though I observed that none talked, for the crying without was not to be forgotten. Now, as I have said, we kept silence, but this was only for a time, and our reason for breaking it was a discovery made by George, the younger apprentice. This lad, being no smoker, was fain to do something to while away the time, and with this intent he had raked out the contents of a small box which had lain upon the deck at the side of the forward bulkhead. The box had appeared filled with odd small lumber, of which a part was a dozen or so gray paper wrappers, such as are used, I believe, for carrying samples of corn, though I have seen them put to other purposes as indeed was now the case. At first, George had tossed these aside, but it growing darker, the bosun lit one of the candles which we had found in the lazarette. Thus, George, who was proceeding to tidy back the rubbish which was cumbering the place, discovered something which caused him to cry out to us his astonishment. Now, upon hearing George call out, the bosun bade him keep silent, thinking it was but a piece of boyish restlessness. But George drew the candle to him and bade us to listen, for the wrappers were covered with fine handwriting after the fashion of a woman's. Even as George told us of that which he had found, we became aware that the night was upon us, for suddenly the crying ceased, and in place thereof there came out of the far distance the low thunder of the night growling that had tormented us through the past two nights. For a space we ceased to smoke and sat listening, for it was a very fearsome sound. In a little while it seemed to surround the ship as on the previous nights, but at length, using ourselves to it, we resumed our smoking and bade George to read out to us from the writing upon the paper wrappers. Then George, though shaking somewhat in his voice, began to decipher that which was upon the wrappers, and a strange and awesome story it was, and bearing much upon our own concerns. George read, Now when they discovered the spring among the trees that crowned the bank, there was much rejoicing, for we had come to have much need of water, and some being in fear of the ship, declaring because of all our misfortunes and the strange disappearances of their messmates and the brother of my lover, that she was haunted by a devil, declared their intention of taking their gear up to the spring and there making a camp. 
This they conceived and carried out in the space of one afternoon, though our captain, a good and true man, begged of them, as they valued life, to stay within the shelter of their living space. Yet, as I have remarked, they would none of them hark to his counsel, and because the mate and the boatswain were gone, he had no means of compelling them to wisdom. At this point, George ceased to read and began to rustle among the wrappers as though in search for the continuation of the story. Presently, he cried out that he could not find it, and dismay was upon his face. But the boatswain told him to read on from such sheets as were left, for as he observed, we had no knowledge if more existed, and we were fain to know further of that spring, which from the story appeared to be over the bank near to the vessel. George, being thus adjured, picked up the topmost sheet, for they were, as I heard him explain to the boatswain, all oddly numbered and having but little reference one to the other. Yet we were mightily keen to know even so much as such odd scraps might tell unto us. Whereupon George read from the next wrapper, which ran thus. Now suddenly I heard the captain cry out that there was something in the main cabin, and immediately my lover's voice calling to me to lock my door and on no condition to open it. Then the door of the captain's cabin slammed, and there came a silence, and the silence was broken by a sound. Now this was the first time that I had heard the thing make search through the big cabin, but afterwards my lover told me it had happened aforetime, and they had told me not, fearing to frighten me needlessly. Though now I understood why my lover had bidden me never to leave my stateroom door unbolted in the night time. I remember also wondering if the noise of breaking glass that had waked me somewhat from my dreams a night or two previously had been the work of this indescribable thing, for on the morning following that night, the glass in the skylight had been smashed. Thus it was that my thoughts wandered out to trifles, while yet my soul seemed ready to leap out from my bosom with fright. I had, by reason of usage, come to ability to sleep despite of the fearsome growling, for I had conceived its cause to be the mutter of spirits in the night and had not allowed myself to be unnecessarily frightened with doleful thoughts, for my lover had assured me of our safety and that we should yet come to our home. And now, beyond my door, I could hear that fearsome sound of the thing searching. George came to a sudden pause again, for the boatswain had risen and put a great hand upon his shoulder. The lad made to speak, but the boatswain beckoned to him to say no word, and at that we who had grown to nervousness through the happenings in the story began every one to listen. Thus we heard a sound which had escaped us in the noise of the growling without the vessel and the interest of the reading. For a space we kept very silent, no man doing more than let the breath go in and out of his body, and so each one of us knew that something moved without in the big cabin. In a little something touched upon our door, and it was, as I have mentioned earlier, as though a great swab rubbed and scrubbed at the woodwork. 
At this, the men nearest unto the door came backwards in a surge, being put in sudden fear by reason of the thing being so near. But the boatswain held up a hand, bidding them in a low voice to make no unneedful noise. Yet, as though the sounds of their moving had been heard, the door was shaken with such violence that we waited, everyone, expecting to see it torn from its hinges. But it stood, and we hasted to brace it by means of the bunk boards, which we placed between it and the two great chests, and upon these we set a third chest, so that the door was quite hid. Now, I have no remembrance whether I have put down that when we came first to the ship, we had found the stern window upon the larboard side to be shattered. But so it was, and the boatswain had closed it by means of a teakwood cover which was made to go over it in stormy weather, with stout battens across, which were set tight with wedges. This he had done upon the first night, having fear that some evil thing might come upon us through the opening, and very prudent was this same action of his, as shall be seen. Then George cried out that something was at the cover of the larboard window, and we stood back, growing ever more fearful, because that some evil creature was so eager to come at us. But the boatswain, who was a very courageous man and calm withal, walked over to the closed window and saw to it that the battens were secure, for he had knowledge sufficient to be sure, if this were so, that no creature with strength less than that of a whale could break it down, and in such case its bulk would assure us from being molested. Then, even as he made sure of the fastenings, there came a cry of fear from some of the men, for there had come at the glass of the unbroken window a reddish mass which plunged up against it, sucking upon it as it were. Then Josh, who was nearest to the table, caught up the candle and held it toward the thing. Thus I saw that it had the appearance of a many-flapped thing shaped as it might be out of raw beef, but it was alive. At this we stared, everyone being too bemused with terror to do aught to protect ourselves even had we been possessed of weapons. And as we remained thus an instant, like silly sheep awaiting the butcher, I heard the framework creak and crack, and there ran splits all across the glass. In another moment the whole thing would have been torn away and the cabin undefended, but that the boatswain, with a great curse at us for our landlubberly lack of use, seized the other cover and clapped it over the window. At that there was more help than could be made to avail, and the battens and wedges were in place in a trice. That this was no sooner accomplished than need be, we had immediate proof. For there came a rending of wood and a splintering of glass, and after that a strange yowling out in the dark, and the yowling rose above and drowned the continuous growling that filled the night. In a little while it died away, and in the brief silence that seemed to ensue, we heard a slobby fumbling at the teak cover, but it was well secured, and we had no immediate cause for fear. Chapter 4 The Two Faces 
of the remainder of that night, I have but a confused memory. At times, we heard the door shaken behind the great chests, but no harm came to it. And odd whiles, there was a soft thudding and rubbing upon the decks over our heads. And once, as I recollect, the thing made a final try at the teak covers across the windows. But the day came at last and found me sleeping. Indeed, we had slept beyond the noon, but that the bosun, mindful of our needs, waked us, and we removed the chests. Yet, for perhaps the space of a minute, none durst open the door, until the bosun bid us stand to one side. We faced about at him then, and saw that he held a great cutlass in his right hand. He called to us that there were four more weapons, and made a backward motion with his left hand toward an open locker. At that, as might be supposed, we made some haste to the place to which he pointed, and found that, among some other gear, there were three more weapons, such as he held, but the fourth was a straight cut and thrust, and this I had the good fortune to secure. Being now armed, we ran to join the bosun, for by this he had the door open, and was scanning the main cabin. I would remark here how a good weapon doth seem to put heart into a man, for I, who but a few short hours since had feared for my life, was now right full of lustiness and fight, which, mayhap, was no matter for regret. From the main cabin, the bosun led up onto the deck, and I remember some surprise at finding the lid of the scuttle even as we had left it the previous night. But then I recollected that the skylight was broken, and there was access to the big cabin that way. Yet I questioned within myself as to what manner of thing it could be which ignored the convenience of the scuttle and descended by way of the broken skylight. We made a search of the decks and forecastle, but found nothing, and after that the bosun stationed two of us on guard whilst the rest went about such duties as were needful. In a little we came to breakfast, and after that we prepared to test the story upon the sample wrappers to see, perchance, whether there was indeed a spring of fresh water among the trees. Now between the vessel and the trees lay a slope of thick mud, against which the vessel rested. To have scrambled up this bank had been next to impossible by reason of its fat richness, for indeed it looked fit to crawl. But that Josh called out to the bosun that he had come upon a ladder lashed across the forecastle head. This was brought, also, several hatch covers. The latter were placed first upon the mud, and the latter laid upon them, by which means we were enabled to pass up to the top of the bank without contact with the mud. Here we entered at once among the trees, for they grew right up to the edge. But we had no trouble in making a way, for they were nowhere close together, but standing, rather, each one in a little open space by itself. We had gone a little way among the trees when, suddenly, one who was with us cried out that he could see something away on our right, and we clutched everyone his weapon the more determinedly and went towards it. Yet it proved to be but a seaman's chest, and a space further off we discovered another. And so, after a little walking, we found the camp, 
but there was small semblance of a camp about it, for the sail of which the tent had been formed was all torn and stained, and lay muddy upon the ground. Yet the spring was all we had wished, clear and sweet, and so we knew we might dream of deliverance. Now, upon our discovery of the spring, it might be thought that we should set up a shout to those upon the vessel, but this was not so, for there was something in the air of the place which cast a gloom upon our spirits, and we had no disinclination to return unto the vessel. Upon coming to the brig, the boatswain called to four of the men to go down into the boats and pass up the breakers. Also, he collected all the buckets belonging to the brig, and forthwith each of us was set to our own work. Some, those with the weapons, entered into the wood and gave down the water to those stationed upon the bank, and these, in turn, passed it to those in the vessel. To the man in the galley, the boatswain gave command to fill the boiler with some of the most select pieces of the pork and beef from the casks and get them cooked so soon as might be. And so we were kept at it, for it had been determined, now that we had come upon water, that we should stay not an hour longer in that monster-ridden craft, and we were all agog to get the boats revictualled and put back to the sea, from which we had too gladly escaped. So we worked through all that remainder of the morning, and right on into the afternoon, for we were in mortal fear of the coming dark. Towards four o'clock, the boatswain sent the man, who had been set to do our cooking, up to us with slices of salt meat upon biscuits, and we ate as we worked, washing our throats with water from the spring, and so before the evening we had filled our breakers, and near every vessel which was convenient for us to take in the boats. More, some of us snatched the chance to wash our bodies, for we were sore with brine, having dipped in the sea to keep down thirst as much as might be. Now, though it had not taken us so great a while to make a finish of our water-carrying, if matters had been more convenient, yet because of the softness of the ground under our feet, and the care with which we had to pick our steps, and some little distance between us and the brig, it had grown later than we desired, before we had made an end. Therefore, when the boatswain sent word that we should come aboard and bring our gear, we made all haste. Thus, as it chanced, I found that I had left my sword beside the spring, having placed it there to have two hands for the carrying of one of the breakers. At my remark and my loss, George, who stood near, cried out that he would run for it and was gone in a moment, being greatly curious to see the spring. Now, at this very moment, the boatswain came up and called for George, but I informed him that he had run to the spring to bring me my sword. At this, the boatswain stamped his foot and swore a great oath, declaring that he had kept the lad by him all the day, having a wish to keep him from any danger which the wood might hold, and knowing the lad's desire to adventure there. At this, a matter which I should have known, I reproached myself for so gross a piece of stupidity, and hastened after the boatswain, who had disappeared over the top of the bank. I saw his back as he passed into the wood, and ran until I was up with him, for suddenly, as it were, I found that a sense of chilly dampness had come among the trees. 
though a while before the place had been full of the warmth of the sun. This I put to the account of the evening, which was drawing on apace, and also it must be borne in mind that there were but the two of us. We came to the spring, but George was not to be seen, and I saw no sign of my sword. At this the boatswain raised his voice and cried out the lad's name. Once he called, and again. Then at the second shout we heard the boy's shrill halloo from some distance ahead among the trees. At that we ran towards the sound, plunging heavily across the ground, which was everywhere covered with a thick scum that clogged the feet in walking. As we ran, we hallowed, and so came upon the boy, and I saw that he did have my sword. The boatswain ran towards him, and caught him by the arm, speaking with anger, and commanding him to return with us immediately to the vessel. But the lad, for reply, pointed with my sword, and we saw that he pointed at what appeared to be a bird against the trunk of one of the trees. This, as I moved closer, I perceived to be a part of the tree, and no bird, but it had a very wondrous likeness to a bird, so much so that I went up to it to see if my eyes had deceived me. Yet it seemed no more than a freak of nature, though most wondrous in its fidelity, being but an excrescence upon the trunk. With a sudden thought that it would make me a curio, I reached up to see whether I could break it away from the tree, but it was above my reach so that I had to leave it. Yet one thing I discovered, for in stretching towards the protuberance, I had placed a hand upon the tree, and its trunk was soft as pulp under my fingers, much after the fashion of a mushroom. As we turned to go, the boatswain inquired of George his reason for going beyond the spring, and George told him that he had seemed to hear someone calling to him among the trees, and there had been so much pain in the voice that he had run toward it, but been unable to discover the owner. Immediately afterwards, he had seen the curious bird-like excrescence upon a tree nearby. Then we had called, and of the rest we had knowledge. We had come nigh to the spring upon our return journey, when a sudden low whine seemed to run among the trees. I glanced towards the sky and realized that the evening was upon us. I was about to remark upon this to the boatswain when abruptly he came to a stand and bent forward to stare into the shadows to our right. At that, George and I turned ourselves about to perceive what matter it was which had attracted the attention of the boatswain. Thus we made out a tree some twenty yards away, which had all its branches wrapped about its trunk, much as the lash of a whip is wound about its stalk. Now this seemed to us a very strange sight, and we made all of us toward it to learn the reason of so extraordinary a happening. Yet when we had come close upon it, we had no means of arriving at a knowledge of that which it portended, but walked each of us around the tree, and were more astonished after our circumnavigation of the great vegetable than before. Now suddenly, and in the distance, I caught the far wailing that came before the night, 
and abruptly, as it seemed to me, the tree wailed at us. At that I was vastly astonished and frightened, yet though I retreated, I could not withdraw my gaze from the tree, but scanned it the more intently, and suddenly I saw a brown human face peering at us from between the wrapped branches. At this I stood very still, being seized with that fear which renders one shortly incapable of movement. Then, before I had possession of myself, I saw that it was of a part with the trunk of the tree, for I could not tell where it ended and the tree began. Then I caught the boson by the arm and pointed, for whether it was a part of the tree or not, it was a work of the devil. But the boson, on seeing it, ran straightway so close to the tree that he might have touched it with his hand, and I found myself beside him. Now George, who was on the boson's other side, whispered that there was another face not unlike to a woman's, and indeed, so soon as I perceived it, I saw that the tree had a second excrescence, most strangely after the face of a woman. Then the boson cried out with an oath at the strangeness of the thing, and I felt the arm which I held shake somewhat, as it might be with a deep emotion. Then, far away, I heard again the sound of the wailing, and immediately, from among the trees about us, there came answering wails and a great sighing. And before I had time to be more than aware of these things, the tree wailed again at us, and at that the boson cried out suddenly that he knew, though of what it was that he knew, I had at that time no knowledge. And immediately he began with his cutlass to strike at the tree before us and to cry upon God to blast it. And lo, at his smiting, a very fearsome thing happened, for the tree did bleed like any live creature. Thereafter a great yowling came from it, and it began to writhe. And suddenly I became aware that all about us the trees were a quiver. Then George cried out and ran round upon my side of the boson, and I saw that one of the great cabbage-like things pursued him upon its stem, even as an evil serpent. And very dreadful it was, for it had become blood-red in color. But I smote it with the sword, which I had taken from the lad, and it fell to the ground. Now from the brig I heard hallowing, and the trees had become like live things, and there was a vast growling in the air and hideous trumpetings. Then I caught the boson again by the arm and shouted him that we must run for our lives. And this we did, smiting with our swords as we ran, for there came things at us out from the growing dusk. Thus we made the brig, and the boats being ready, I scrambled after the boson into his, and we put straightway into the creek, all of us, pulling with so much haste as our loads would allow. As we went, I looked back at the brig, and it seemed to me that a multitude of things hung over the bank above her, and there seemed a flicker of things moving hither and thither aboard of her. And then we were in the great creek up which we had come, and so in a little it was again night. All that night we rode, keeping very strictly to the center of the big creek, 
and all about us bellowed the vast growling, being more fearsome than ever I had heard it, until it seemed to me that we had waked all that land of terror to a knowledge of our presence. But then when the morning came, so good a speed had we made, what with our fear and the current being with us, that we were nigh upon the open sea, whereat each one of us raised a shout, feeling like freed prisoners. And so, full of thankfulness to the Almighty, we rode outward to the sea.